Welcome to the Damascus Road Podcast. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus and his life was changed forever. That is what we hope and pray for here. Now, on to this week's episode. Thanks for joining us for Psalm 129 of the Psalm of Ascent series. And today we're talking about perseverance. So sticking with that theme of perseverance, I want to share with you about my last stint of substitute teaching. Uh, I only usually sub about once a week, but I did three weeks straight at the end of the spring semester. Uh, Now, some days of subbing can be fun, um, but other days just drag on forever. And the worst days aren't actually the days with the worst behaved kids. They're the days that are the most boring. And I usually pick high school classes because there's less work. Is it going to be okay? (laughs) Less work you have to actually do. But this year, after one week of high school and being around the most boring and apathetic students I've ever met, I was ready to quit. Uh, I was making jokes about jumping off a bridge at one point, and that's not something I would ever usually joke about. Um, I just really hate doing work that doesn't feel significant. So with a few weeks still left to go, I thought, okay, maybe it will be more work, but I'll do elementary school since it's more interesting. And when I showed up at the elementary school, I found out that the class I was going to teach didn't have a teacher. Um, Their teacher quit the first month of school. (laughs) So these were feral children. (laughs) And I felt really bad for them. They were like sad little puppies. I couldn't just leave on the side of the road. After a whole year of subs, they they hardly had any structure, and they really didn't get their fifth grade education. Half of them couldn't divide, and two of them couldn't add. Um, But I'm really glad I switched from high school to elementary because I had so much more fun with fifth graders. Even though they were really loud, at least they still cared. Um, After just two weeks, they behaved most of the time, and they participated in most of the lesson plans. And something fun we did in class every day was spend half an hour reading Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Um, Have any of you guys read it or seen the Johnny Depp version? Cool. Are you traumatized as well? Anyway, so hopefully most of you will remember the scene with the squirrels and the nuts in it. (laughs) Basically, in the factory, it's the squirrel's job to find out which nuts are bad and get rid of them. And one of the spoiled children, Veruca Salt, gets deemed a bad nut by the squirrels and gets dragged down into the factory to God knows where. It's terrifying. So as I read this scene for 30 minutes, the kids could not get it together. At first, it was just raucous laughter because I said the word nut probably 50 times. (laughs) I don't think half of them knew why it was funny. They just knew it was supposed to be funny. And then it went from laughter to shock and screaming when Veruca Salt got dragged down into the factory. Miss B, what are they doing to her? Why do they think she's a nut? What, What kind of book is this? And the whole time, I have to be the adult in the room. I can't laugh. That's illegal. So to this day, the kids still probably think I don't know why nuts are funny, but I'm a grown woman, and I do know. (laughs) Anyway, the whole time I was on this job, I would think about this mysterious teacher that just abandoned her class. She quit only a month into school and probably didn't realize the long-term implications of her actions. And I'm not saying it was all her fault. It's really hard to be a teacher right now. But it's an excellent example of how when we give up, it deeply affects the people who are depending on us. Now, sometimes it is very wise to make a change and give up a certain situation when it doesn't serve anyone. 
Um, I've quit jobs before, too, when I felt like I really needed to. However, I think that we've all seen that giving up isn't always done out of wisdom. It's all too often done out of weakness or selfishness or just fear. Perseverance will cost us, but so will giving up. Our fates are interwoven with each other, and a culture of giving up will only hurt us in the long run. I think we all fear living in a world where people don't know how to follow through, a world where families fall apart, businesses flounder, and ministries dwindle, a world where people don't keep their word and discouragement breaks our spirits. And I think that the world at large knows the importance of perseverance. It's not a uniquely Christian endeavor to try to survive. That's just human nature. Everyone is trying to maintain what little good they have in the world. Everyone is trying, and yet few are succeeding. So what is the difference between how Christians persevere and the rest of the world? And how do we know that the way of persevering in Christ really works? Let's get into it. So take a moment to open up to Psalm 129. To recap, this is a psalm of ascent, sung on the way to Jerusalem by pilgrims three times a year. This pilgrimage to the holy city was an outward expression of the inner pursuit of God's holiness. Traveling to worship was an expression of the desire to find faith and endurance through hardship, which we see in this psalm. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth, let Israel say. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth, but they have not gained the victory over me. Plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long, but the Lord is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like grass on the roof, which withers before it can grow. A reaper cannot fill his hands with it, nor one who gathers fills his arms. May those who pass by not say to them, the blessing of the Lord be on you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Okay, so let's break it down. The metaphor throughout is that the back of Israel is like a field that was being farmed by their enemies. This image is very visceral, gory even. It's supposed to elicit strong emotions. And it's relatable, right? Have you ever felt like someone or some situation was cutting into you? Like they were making you a worse version of yourself and wearing down your spirit? I know I have. Yet we find out that the enemy slash farmer is unsuccessful. God cuts the ropes of the plow so that it won't work anymore. The psalmist is trying to say to his enemy, nice try, jerks. You tried to plant your evil into me, but God stopped you. Now your garden that you worked so hard on is failing and your harvest is sad. I hope no one gives you compliments on your vegetables this year. That will teach Jerusalem's enemies not to mess with us anymore. Ha. And it's almost like a cartoon. And part of why it reads that way is because Psalm 129 is an imprecatory psalm. An imprecation is the act of calling down a curse on someone. Like when the author says, may all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. I know calling down curses doesn't sound very Christ-like, does it? I thought we weren't supposed to do that. But we see imprecations all throughout the Old Testament from the psalmist and the prophets, and they have a purpose. It seems that imprecations are designed to give the reader a way to process their suffering and find a healthy way to frame their relationship with their enemy. The first part of this process is labeling your enemy as such. Everyone has an enemy, and to be a Christian is to realize that all of our enemies are really the same one. At the core, all of our enemies are the devil. He manifests into our day-to-day lives as the people and systems of this world that are corrupted by sin and work against God. 
He is always scheming and trying to plant himself into our hearts like a farmer planting seeds. Ephesians reads, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. But the psalmist doesn't wish revenge on his flesh and blood enemies like the world teaches us to. He simply claims victory over them. And he prays that their evil intentions would not be successful. He doesn't want the labor they put into the field to result in a good harvest. Jesus prays this way as well in the Lord's Prayer when he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. It is good and necessary for us to pray against the schemes of the devil. It is good to want people to experience the consequences of their sin so that they will feel their shame and repent. The psalmist is also very honest about the situation. He doesn't try to cover up the history of pain from the enemy's efforts. He doesn't say, whatever, I don't even care, or that didn't hurt. He knows that apathy is not the solution to pain. He describes it as if he was being cut into by a plow, and that's really painful. Even though he has endured so much hardship, he knows that victory is ultimately in God's hands and that God cannot be defeated. He knows that all of his life and really all the existence of God's people has been met with hatred and oppression, but they have survived. They have thrived. God has rescued them again and again. Knowing that God has always been on their side gives him hope that God will continue to be faithful. The Apostle Paul also talks about finding perseverance and remembering God's faithfulness constantly throughout his letters. Like in 2 Corinthians, he says, we are pressed on, side, on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Yes, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus, so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. So we live in the face of death, but this has resulted in eternal life for you. Paul knows that it is not our own strength and gumption that gets us through despair. It is only Christ. Because Jesus passed through life, or through death into life, we are also able to follow him into life through dying to ourselves. We are able to pass through the worst things in this world and come out on the other side because of Jesus. In his book, Along Obedience in the Same Direction, Eugene Peterson makes the argument that reality is the Christian's key to perseverance. Reality is that all things will pass away, and only Christ, his word, and his body will last. We are his body, and as we remain in him, we cannot be defeated. We should take great comfort in the fact that over thousands of years, many people have tried to eradicate God's people, um, and they have all failed. Their plans will not succeed. No one will bless them on their good harvest. So now I want to answer my previous question from the beginning. What makes Christian perseverance different? What makes it work? I think, in the, I think the difference in the question between the Christian and the non-Christian is not just asking how do we persevere, but more importantly, what parts of us will persevere? Because to be a Christian is to know the reality that God's will is the only one that will be successful. Christ in us makes us eternal beings, and everything that is not redeemed by him will not last. First John reads, this world is fading away, along with everything that people crave, but anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. 
It is so important to internalize this reality because it will fundamentally change how we persevere. So when we face trials, we won't just ask, how do I get through this circumstance as painlessly as possible? And instead, we'll go deeper. We will ask, what does God want for me as I go through this? How does this circumstance really matter in the full scope of eternity? And what kind of person will I become as I endure it? The difference between these two perspectives hit me hard this week when I was watching Gone with the Wind for the first time. So if you haven't seen it, Gone with the Wind is about a character, Katie Scarlett O'Hara. She is a fiery southern belle living through the Civil War in Georgia. Before the war, Scarlett was naive, selfish, and obsessed with getting attention. Her poor character shows right away when you watch how she is obsessed with a married man that she can't have. She even marries a different man that she doesn't love just to make him jealous. When the war's Oh, then the war started and stripped her of everything she once had. Her husband that she didn't care about died. She lost her money, comfort, and safety. She experienced truly awful things that changed her forever. For example, she had to help to saw off a soldier's leg and deliver a baby with no experience. And halfway through the movie, as she barely escapes the fires in Atlanta, you think that she will finally start to change for the better. After all this character building, you'd hope she'd finally gain some perspective, right? I went into this movie fully blind. I 100% expected her to turn around. I wanted to see her persevere and come out a changed woman on the other side of the war. But when she gets home from Atlanta, she says this.
I love old movies. They're so dramatic. Like, she falls in the dirt because she has to eat a carrot. <laughs> um, but did you catch what she, she said? She said, if I have to lie, steal, cheat, or kill, God is my witness. I'll never be hungry again. And then she proceeds to do all of those terrible things. The craziest thing is that Scarlett O'Hara does persevere. You have to give it to this lady that she has gumption, and she doesn't stay down for long. But it is the worst parts of her that persevere, and it is the abundant sin in her that gets stronger. Her envy, greed, and wrath help her to survive for a time and to get ahead for a while, but they continue to spiral until she is left with nothing that matters. She survived the hell of war only to arrive in a hell of her own making. It is as if the devil had been planting evil on her back all her life, and, her, and his crop succeeded. I tell, you, I tell you all of this simply to say, you most likely will survive the trials that lay ahead of you. We will almost likely find some way to get through the inevitable, inevitable suffering that lies ahead. The human spirit is very resilient. But as we push through these trials, we must go deeper than survival and find victory through Christ. We must ask more than, will I survive? We need to find assurance in what God tells us will survive and what will fade away. It's a cliche, but it's deeply true that we need to rely on his strength and not our own. Another major theme in Gone with the Wind is the tendency of Scarlet to keep looking back. She keeps looking back to the life she had before the war, back to when her family had slaves and had tons of money because they were exploiting them before the man she loved was married to someone else. And it is her inability to let go of the past that makes her more willing to compromise her character in the present. She will do anything it takes to have the life she once had. But Jesus warns us not to look back. When talking about the end of this age, he references Lot's wife, who looked back as she was fleeing Sodom and was turned into a pillar of salt. Remember what happens, happened to Lot's wife. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. And if you let your life go, you will save it. I will admit that I am guilty of looking back, and I've recently felt very convicted about it. I'm constantly tempted to imagine life back in the days before bad things happened to me, before I was lied to, before the heartbreaks of dating, before my parents and my best friend moved away, before the discouraging challenges of ministry. And I'm realizing that the fantasy of the past has kept me from persevering. It is really hard to try again when you keep thinking about how painful it was the last time it didn't work out. But I know deep down that there's nothing for me back there. Christ is calling me forward. He is waiting for me to follow him into the beautiful unknown. To have faith in Jesus is believing that he has something better for me now, and my best days lie ahead of me. Perseverance to me is saying with confidence to my enemy, the devil, you have hurt me, but you have never defeated me. You have planted your evil in me, but you have not succeeded. You're not going to get your harvest of sin in my life because Jesus has saved me. Because I know this, I will keep running the race and I will reach the end in victory. And as I look around this room, I know so many of you have conquered because God was on your side. You have persevered and you have inspired me as you did it. But even though you have won so many battles, I know that it's hard to feel that way. It's hard not to look at the pain of the past and it's hard to believe that our best days are ahead of us. And I wanna encourage you that you're not the only one that this is difficult for. 
This is why we have songs, to remember God's goodness, to claim victory over the devil, and find a way to keep going together. The pilgrimage to Jerusalem does not require you to be perfect, and it doesn't require you to be happy all the time. Jesus doesn't ask you to save the world. He only asks you to have faith and follow him. Just walk and step with him, and he will get you to the end. In Philippians, Paul says, I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I've already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. As a disciple of Christ, remember this. You are not just escaping the past. You are running towards a beautiful eternity. Running a race is a very different experience from escaping. The person who is escaping will just stop when they don't feel pain anymore. The person who is running the race will keep going further and further, making decisions that may be painful, but they will push through temporary pain to get through the end. Someone looking to just survive will work to live a painless life. But resilient Christians want more than that. They want purpose and meaning. Pilgrims don't want to just get out of town. They want to get to Jerusalem. All right, so it's hard to settle on just a few applications when it comes to perseverance. It's one of the biggest themes of the Bible, and I could write a whole book on it. But I just want to give you a handful of practices to help you grow here. The first is to find ways to internalize reality, because reality is the key to perseverance. You can do this, first of all, by committing yourself to studying the Bible. Ask yourself seriously, do you feel like you really understand the story that the Bible tells us? Do you understand why you need to be saved and how Jesus is your Savior? The Word of God will never fade away, so if you want to persevere, you should steep yourself in it. Don't just read the Bible to say you did it. Do it to find the treasures of truth that lie within. Let it sink into your being until it is intertwined with who you are. So I read all the way through the Bible when I was 20, and it fundamentally changed the life, the way I, I saw the world. But I didn't read it very well. I just tried to get through it as fast as possible. I was reading like 10 chapters a day. Um, but after many years, I'm just now wrapping up reading my Bible all the way through for the second time. And the second time is much more impactful because I'm not just reading it, I'm internalizing it. I can take the time to chew on it, I can analyze the stories, do research, notice patterns, and find out how it applies to my life now. It continues to shape me like nothing else can. Another way to internalize reality is to understand the story you have been telling yourself. When you think of the story of your life, do you see yourself as the victim or the victor? How do you think God feels about you? What do you think it takes to get ahead in life? These stories we tell ourselves will shape our lives, so take the time to sit with a journal, a friend, a mentor of some sort, and just process your story. Pay attention to the ways God has been present all along, and notice how he is calling you forward now. Once you understand your story, you can start aligning it with reality and live in the truth. The second way I want to encourage you to persevere is to practice obedience. On the journey of faith, obedience is much more important than perfection. And if we practice obeying God and trusting God in small difficulties, we will be more resilient 
in bigger difficulties. Practice being a good steward of your resources just because God has asked you to. Practice forgiving your enemy because God says that vengeance is his, not ours. Practice acting on your convictions, controlling the content you consume, and grow in self-control. Don't grow apathetic and tell yourself that small things don't matter. In a long obedience in the same direction, Peterson makes the case that apathy and neutrality are killers of perseverance. The person who makes excuses for hypocrites and rationalizes the excesses of the wicked, who loses a sense of opposition to sin, who obscures the difference between faith and denial, grace and selfishness, that is the person to be wary of. Remember that you are not just trying to get out of town, you are on your way to Jerusalem. Don't just deal with your sin when it causes you pain. Instead, run towards holiness in all the areas of your life because why wouldn't you want the best that God has to offer? Uh, and lastly, I invite you to develop perseverance through prayer. Pray, pray sincerely and pray often. Last year, I started listening to a Catholic daily office book consistently, and I really loved it. They have an app for it and everything, and the prayer I loved the most was this one, which they pray every day. God, come to my assistance. Lord, make haste to help me. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was now in the beginning, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. So whether it's this prayer that you can memorize, and you want to use it, or a different one, just find a way to ask God for help when you are pushing through difficulty. These prayers will assure you that he is with you when you need him. So I spent a lot of time today talking about how terrible that nasty Scarlett O'Hara is. But I want to end by talking about an awesome young woman named Lucy. Uh, this is just a quote I'm going to read. Lucy was a Christian in Syracuse, Sicily, during the great persecution of Emperor Diocletian. Her family intended to give her in marriage to a pagan suitor. When Lucy gave a substantial portion of her wealth to the poor, her fiancé was enraged. He reported her as a Christian to Roman authorities, and she was imprisoned and tortured. Because she would not renounce Christ, her eyes were put out, and she was set aflame. When the fire failed to harm her, Lucy gave praise to God, and she was finally killed with a sword. Her victory in Christ and her courageous faith have been commemorated by every generation of Christians since her martyrdom. Traditional depictions of Lucy show her triumphantly holding her own eyes on a platter of gold. So I found this image of her on a page called Our Church Speaks, and they share the stories of Christians throughout history. And they portray her here with a quote saying, I bless you, O Father of my Lord Jesus Christ, because through your Son, the fire has no power over me. Lucy didn't fear death, and she didn't fear her enemies. Instead, she clung to Christ, and she persevered. I think of her when I read Hebrews 12:1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the faith of life, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. I want to encourage you that you are surrounded by so many amazing believers, past and present, who have persevered. You are part of God's people, and we are tough we will help you to persevere when you go through hell. And even beyond this church, the body of Christ all over the world is so awesome and it continues to grow. Like those pilgrims on the road, Christians know how to get to Jerusalem. They've done it before, they do it all the time. Remember that we are surrounded by a great crowd of witnesses and we will get to Jerusalem together. Let's pray.
Uh, dear Lord, thank you so much for always being with us. Thank you for calling us forward. We're so grateful that the past doesn't determine the future, but that you do, that your word endures. We are so grateful to be a part of your church, a part of your body, that we get to persevere into eternity with you. We know that you will carry us through. Um, we know that you will sustain us. We put our trust in you, Lord. Please help us to become a tough people who are resilient, who are hopeful, who look forward and not backward. We love you so much, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining the Damascus Road Podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus together by being with God, loving everyone, transforming people, developing leaders, growing new ministries, and changing the world. You can find out more about us online at DamascusRoadTucson.com.